Please turn to 1 Peter chapter 2 in your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 2. And we want everybody to be able to follow along as we look at 1 Peter chapter 2. The guys have some Bibles, so they've come up front to make their way back as they do. Get their attention, they'll get a Bible to you. It's marked at 1 Peter chapter 2. We have uh, a number of our people who are away on vacation, but a number, 18 in fact, are in Mexico as I speak, arriving last night for a week-long missions trip to help a church there with uh, some projects, including uh, a vacation Bible school. And so we want to pray for their safety. Do that this week as you think of them and that it will be a profitable time for them, but also for the folks to whom they minister as, as well. First Peter chapter 2, as we continue the series, the title of which is on the screen behind me, Living Right in a World Gone Wrong. Most sports of whatever type, whether hockey, basketball, baseball, football, even tennis, they have a tournament format where two teams or individuals play around to see who gets to advance to the next. And when a team or player has defeated their opponent, but they have to await the results from another match or another series to know who it is they're going to play in the next round, it's inevitable that a reporter is going to ask, now who would you rather face in the next round? So if it's hockey, for instance, the Red Wings might be awaiting the winner of the Chicago-San Jose series. And the reporter might ask Henrik Zetterberg, who would you rather play against in the next round, the Blackhawks or the Sharks? Now the truth is, no player or coach in his right mind has ever answered that question. And they'd be a fool to, to do so. If we say we'd rather play against this one particular team, and they turn out to be the team you played. You've now given them more incentives. So nobody ever answers that question. But that doesn't deter a reporter who's groping for questions to ask. What the player will say every time is this. We can't worry about who our opponent's going to be. That's out of our hands. We have to concern ourselves with us and with our game. And if we play like we're capable of, then we can beat anybody. Now, this is essentially what Peter's doing in the letter that we call 1 Peter. He's telling Christians who are faced with opposition that their most important concern is not with the opposition, but with themselves. And reminds them that they're on the winning team, even though the scoreboard may say otherwise at the moment. Two weeks ago, in a message that was titled, We Are the Champions, we saw from chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, that those who obey the gospel win, and that those who disobey ultimately lose. Notice chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble, a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. That was two weeks ago. Last week, from verses 9 and 10, we saw why it is 
that we need not concern ourselves with the power or the prestige or the pomp or the popularity of the world. And we saw last week that it's because we are a people of privilege and a people of purpose and a people who have been given an exalted position in relation to God. Our privileges, we saw, include that we are selected and a serving people and a set-apart people and God's special people. Notice what verse 9 says. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Those are our privileges, and then our purpose is to bring glory to God, according to verse 9, that for this purpose you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. And our position is this. We have these privileges. We have been given this purpose, and our position is, verse 10, that we are the people of God. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. And so in this contest between the believer and the world, what we must concern ourselves is that we play our game. The most important factor is not them. The most important factor is God and our relation to Him. And since we are the people of God, we have then this decisive advantage We will win, but we must play our game. We will be victorious, but we must follow God's game plan. And so we're going to see now, from verses 11 and 12, in just a bit, that that theme continues and transitions to specifically in this letter of 1 Peter, how it is we're to live as we play out the design that God has for His people and His world. Let's pray and ask God to help us then. Father, we thank you for all that has preceded our being here at this sacred moment. Lord, in your providence, you have made it possible in our circumstances for us to be here right now. You've given us the health. You've given us the freedom. Most of all, your spirit has worked in our hearts to give us the desire to hear and learn from and be changed by your word. And so we ask you, Lord, to accomplish your purpose as we look at the words of your servant, Peter. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Verses 11 and 12 serve as a bridge between two major sections of this letter that we call 1 Peter. Verse 11 marks a shift, and we know it's marking a shift because it begins with the words, notice verse 11, dear friends. That's the first time those words are used in this letter. So the focus now shifts from our relationship with one another to our relationship to the unbelieving and often hostile world. And making that shift now from chapter 2 and verse 11 through chapter 4 and verse 11, we're going to be given instructions on how to play the game, as it were, God's way. Those verses, chapter 2 and verse 11, chapter 4 and verse 11, begin and end with the same theme, that of God's glory. And then there's a new section, chapter 4 and verse 12, that again has these same words that marks this new section in chapter 2 and verse 11, dear friends. In fact, chapter 4 and verse 12 says this, if you just turn a couple of pages over, dear friends, do not be surprised 
at the fiery ordeal that's come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And so when we get to that then new section, we'll see what Peter has, has in mind. So chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, and then the explanation that follows in the several verses thereafter, all the way through chapter 4 and verse 11, are all about how we are to live in an unbelieving, hostile world, how to live right in a world that's gone wrong. And these two verses make the transition for us into specific instructions about how we are to evangelize, be witnesses, be God's light in an otherwise dark and hostile world. We're going to see beginning next week, chapter 2 and verse 13, all the way through chapter 3 and verse 7, that our witness is to adorn the gospel message that we say we believe by how we behave, how we interact in various relationships, and then how it is that we respond to suffering, chapter 3 and verse 8 to chapter 4 and verse 11. And why why the suffering stuff? You know, in a section that's about how we're to be lights in darkness because witnessing, being a light in darkness, often results in retaliation, as we will see. So now take a look again, chapter 2 and verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Now, we've included an outline inserted in your program. I encourage you to take a look at that. And I say that verse 11 is telling us, first of all, this, that what we want is not what we need. What we want is not what we need. And that's why Peter then says in verse 11, abstain. Don't go after a certain category of stuff. Now, we'll see what that what that stuff is that we, what we desire. Abstain. Keep away from sinful desires. Now, why is that? Why is it that we might want things that we don't need, that are not helpful for us? Well, the reason is given in passages like Galatians chapter 5 that are familiar to a number of you, where the Bible says the flesh... That is, the sin nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit. And I say in brackets there, sin nature. When, when Paul, who wrote Galatians 5, says the flesh, and then I say, well, that's sin nature. The reason I do that is because the word that's translated flesh in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 17, sarx, that's a Greek word, is the same word that's used in 1 Peter 2.11, and it's translated sinful desires. So abstain from sinful desires, or... To put it another way, abstain from the desires of of the flesh. And in Scripture, the flesh is a metaphor. It's not referring to our physical bodies, but rather to our sinful nature. And so we have a tendency to want things that we don't need. And because of that, we have to be warned by people like Peter to abstain from sinful desires. Now, why should we abstain from those sinful desires? Peter tells us. He says, dear friends, you are foreigners and exiles. What he's telling us is, yes, what we want is not what we need, and here's why it's not what we need. Here's why you should abstain and not pursue this category of things. It's because, as I say in your outline, it is short-sighted to do so. Short-sighted 
to do so. And you see that in these words that he calls us foreigners and exiles. Those, those titles are telling us that you're here for a temporary period of time. That the stuff that is of value to the world, the Bible tells us elsewhere, is passing away and we are simply passing through. And so as foreigners and exiles, don't wrap yourself up then in the things that are valued by a world that is passing away. It is short-sighted for you to do so. This, these two words, foreigners and exiles, foreigners and strangers, are used elsewhere in Scripture. In the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, it was written in Hebrew, most of you know. Your New Testament that we're looking at now was written in Greek, but there was a translation of the Old Testament about a couple hundred years before the time of Jesus, a translation from Hebrew into to Greek. And these same Greek words that are used by Peter here in chapter 2 and verse 11 are used in the Old Testament in a couple of spots. One of those is in Genesis chapter 23, where Abraham is trying to find a place to, to bury uh, his wife, and he says, I'm a foreigner and a stranger among you. Sell me some property for a burial site so I can bury my dead. Now notice the idea of I am, I am a wanderer here. I have not, I'm not planting roots here. I am, in the words of Hebrews chapter 11 in Faith's Hall of Fame, I am looking for a greater city, a city whose builder and maker is God. And so I am a foreigner and stranger just, just passing through. It's used as well in Psalm number 39. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for help. Do not be deaf to my weeping. I dwell with you as a foreigner, a stranger, as all my ancestors were. They died and I'm going to die. And I recognize, therefore, that in effect I am a foreigner and a stranger in this world. And so for us, dear friends, to have our sights and our affections and our values and then in turn our words and our actions and our priorities set upon those things that are passing away, even though the Bible is extremely clear over and over that we are people who are foreigners and strangers passing through, is short-sighted in the extreme. That's why Peter warns us, as we're warned throughout Scripture, abstain from sinful desires because you are foreigners and exiles. But it's not only short-sighted, it is further, I say in your outline, it is harmful to do so. Harmful. Verse 11 says, Abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Now when it says war against your soul, it's not that sinful desires will affect only the immaterial spiritual part of you. You read that, I read that, and that's the way we can easily come to interpret that and understand it. That these sinful desires are things that will harm me immaterially, but perhaps not materially. Will harm my spirit, but perhaps not my body. So they war against your soul. When we read soul, we think immaterial. But hear this. In Scripture, when it uses soul, it's referring to the whole person. And so when Peter warns you, abstain from these sinful desires... You're just passing through. You are foreigners and you are strangers, exiles. It's short-sighted for you to pursue those, but it's also harmful. And it's harmful to you 
as a whole person, both material, your body, and your spirit, will be harmed if you pursue those sinful desires. These spiritual issues will affect us fully, wholly. And they often have effects on our physical well-being. Some of you are familiar with the term psychosomatic. Soul is the Greek word suke. Soma is body. And so psychosomatic means, means body, soul, material, and, and immaterial. It's a way of, of uh, referring to the effects that spiritual issues can have on the body, that physical issues can have upon on the spirit. And so how are we to understand when we see the word, the word soul? Sometimes it's used interchangeably with spirit, as in places like 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23. But here's a way. It's not perfect. It doesn't fit every but most circumstances. For you to think about the two parts, the two components that you and I are. God has made us physical and God has made us spiritual. God has made us matter, material, and immatter, immaterial. He has made us body and spirit. And so here's a way to think of it. I have a body and I have a spirit and together I am a soul. Body and spirit. I have a body, I have a spirit, and body and spirit are soul. And so when Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11 that pursuing these sinful desires will do harm to your soul, they wage war. They're at battle against your soul. It's saying they're at, at battle against you and all that you are, body and spirit. Sinful desires, when carried out in the way that we think and the way we talk and the way we act, will harm us. I want you to notice something carefully in verse 11. It's abstain from sinful desires. It does not say abstain from desires that are sinful. It's abstain from sinful desires. Not abstain from a desire for what is sinful. Rather, the desire is sinful before you speak or act in sin. Now, let me make sure we get that. Abstain from sinful desires. We read that, if we go quickly, we read that to say, abstain from desires for what is sinful. But the truth is, I can have desires for things that are not necessarily sinful but they are still sinful desires because, as we will see, they become idolatrous desires. Abstain from sinful desires. The desire itself is a sinful desire. And so what are these? What are these sinful desires? Here's a way to think of it. Sinful desires are redirected desires. A lot of ways you could describe that. I chose redirected. Now, redirected from what? Your desires and your affections and my desires and my affections are to be directed toward God and toward others, right? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
These are the two greatest commandments, says Jesus. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. My desires, your desires, your affections, my affections are to be directed toward God and toward others. Sinful desires are redirected. If not directed toward God, if not directed toward others, then what's left? Toward whom are sinful desires directed? Numero uno. Number one, the most important person in the universe to me at the time that I have this particular sinful desire. And that's why Galatians 5 again says, the flesh, sin nature, desires what is contrary to the spirit. So I I have these redirected desires, not toward God, not toward others, but desires for myself that are to be played out in my relationships. And then after the desire conceives, it brings forth, according to Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Just two verses after now, Paul has warned, you know, the, the flesh, the sin nature, wars against the spirit. The acts of the flesh are obvious. So you have the desires, these redirected desires, not toward God, not toward others, toward self. How is that going to manifest itself? Obviously. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred. So far you say, I'm, I'm not on the list. Discord. Any discord in your life? Any jealousy? Any anger? Selfish ambition? Dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. The whole bit, all of it, has at its root the desires of the flesh, sinful desires. And these are desires not directed toward God, not directed toward others, but redirected toward us. Sinful desire then results in this kind of stuff, says Paul in Galatians 5. So we can know our desires are redirected when we see that kind of effect in verses 19 through 21 of Galatians 5. Yeah, but hopefully we don't want to wait to see the effect, right? I mean, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious, and this stuff happens in your life and in my life, and what's at root when we see those things is redirected and thus sinful desires. But we don't want to wait to see the effects. And so the good news is we can label it before seeing it. Because a sinful desire redirects from God to me. And that's why as Peter is preparing us to play according to God's game plan, in this contest in which he has placed us, in a hostile world as we live as a minority who are following God in his world. As he prepares us for that, he redirects our attention toward God and our relationship with him. Verses 9 and 10, again, look at what it says. You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. 
God's special people. You were called to a particular purpose to declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, now you are the people of God. And so you can analyze your desires before acting on them. Are my frustrations about me? What it's doing to me? How this will adversely affect me? How difficult, whatever the circumstance is, for me? How he, my husband, is failing to honor and cherish me, or conversely, my wife? You see, friends, when self becomes the substance of my desires, then here are the kinds of things that happen. Personal offense becomes a capital crime. You offend me, you've committed murder. Because remember, I'm the most important person in the universe. Now, none of us would ever say that. We just act that way. And it comes out in the acts of the sinful nature, which are rooted in the desires of the sinful nature. And so personal offense becomes a capital crime. Desires become demands. All I want is fill in the blank. Sounds innocent enough. <laughs> ah, but I don't, it's not just, you know, it'd be great if that happened. Baby, it better happen. It's a demand, and if it doesn't happen, somebody's going to pay. Personal offense becomes capital crime. Desire becomes a demand. Disappointment morphs into anger. Even desires for good things become idolatrous because I must have them, and in the absence of having them, I display the acts of the sinful nature in my tongue and in my actions unrequited, unfulfilled desire becomes the quest of my life. There are people in this room right now, and I'm not thinking of anybody in particular, just you get a room this size, it's inevitable. You've got people who are living their lives because they are pursuing something that they must have fulfilled. And until that happens, they are on a quest for the rest of their life to make sure it happens. And until it happens, it ain't going to be right. Instead of all that, my deepest longing, if for God, and my deepest disappointment is in seeing one I love who's not loving God. Did you all hear that? See, in my relationships, instead now of having me on the throne and pursuing redirected desires, redirected toward me, away from God and away from the benefit of others, instead of that, if I am truly focused on loving God and loving others, then when I see someone not fulfilling his or her role, not following God, yes, I'm disappointed. Yes, I want to prod them in the right direction. But not because of me, but for their benefit and for God's glory. And so ask yourself, how would you fill in the blank to this? I would be satisfied if. And then ask yourself, is, does the blank, is it centered on God? Is it centered on 
others. You know, back in the day, Saturday Night Live had as one of the not ready for primetime players a guy named Al Franken. You all know who Al Franken is? Unbelievably, he's now a senator from Minnesota. He's a senator. Al Franken. Don't even travel through Minnesota. I mean, just, what is wrong with Minnesota? But anyway, I mean, these are the guys who had Jesse Ventura as their governor at one point. Anyway, but he had this routine where he would do this commentary on a news show, and he would manage in his commentary to mention his name, Al Franken, as many times as possible. That was the routine. And every time he said, me, Al Franken, he would smile, and then his name would come up and flash on the screen, Al Franken. And he was spoofing the idea that is very serious in our lives, that the truth is it very easily all becomes about us. And dear friends, as we're in this contest and God equips us and instructs us for the contest of living right in a world gone wrong, in a world that is often hostile to Christianity, as we do that and we look at the world and we look at our culture and our world in 2013, we are often dismayed at the sin out there. But hear this, dear friend. We are too often dismayed at the sin out there more than we are the sin in our hearts. And sin resides in my heart and in your heart and in my sinful, selfish, redirected desires. What we want is not what we need. Abstain from sinful desires. But Peter says a second thing in your outline. What we want is not what we need, but he also tells us what we want is what we need. You say, were you half asleep when you wrote that? No, that's intentional because Galatians chapter 5 again that speaks of the desires of the flesh, the desires of the sin nature, says the flesh, the sin nature, desires what is contrary to the spirit, but then goes on to say the spirit desires what is contrary to the flesh. So if I am a Christian, if I am somebody who is described in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 2, God's chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special people. If that's me, if that's you, then you have His Spirit, and His Spirit creates another set of desires within you. So there's what I want from the sin nature standpoint, and there's what I want from the spiritual nature standpoint. And what we want from the Spirit is precisely what we need. Desires directed toward God and toward others rather than redirected toward us. And Peter tells us why. Why we need these. I say in your outline, it's the means of avoiding. It's the means of avoiding. Now remember, verse 11 says, abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. And what I'm saying here is that the means by which I abstain, the means by which I avoid, the way that I stay away, is by pursuing the desires of, of the Spirit. Verse number 12, live such good lives among the pagans 
that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now, when it says, live such good lives among the pagans, some translations say, conduct yourselves in a way that. And so it's a, it's a, a command to us. It has uh, an imperatival force. That is, the way it's written, it has the force of a command to us to do this to live in a particular way, to conduct ourselves in a particular way. And it's written in a way in Greek that it could actually be that you abstain by living this way. This is the means by which you abstain, by living a different way. You see, friends, we don't just stop doing stuff. We start doing other stuff. In counseling, we call it the replacement principle. You don't just put off, you put on. If all we do is refrain, abstain, but we have not replaced our sinful desires, our sinful affection, now hear this, then that repressed desire coupled with opportunity will result in sinful action. And what we've got in our churches is people who nurse their sinful desires, but they repress them. Because they know it's not right for me to do and act upon what I desire. But we haven't nurtured the spiritual nature. We haven't nurtured spiritual affections. And as a result, that repressed desire, repressed simply because it ain't what church folk do, it wouldn't be right, how would it look? But given opportunity... It results in sinful action. Self-centered desire is sin waiting to happen. Self-centered desire is sin just waiting to happen. And that's why the Puritan Thomas Chalmers wrote an excellent book that, like all Puritan books, is really hard to read. But he wrote this book called the expulsive power of a new affection. Expulsive power of a new affection. That is, I've got these old affections, these sin nature affections, but those are removed by the power of a new affection that replaces them. And so it is the means of avoiding what we want from the Spirit's side from the spiritual nature, is precisely what we need because it's the means of abstaining from the sinful desires. And then I say in your outline as well, it's not only the means of avoiding, it's the means of attracting. The means of attracting. Verse 12, live such good lives, but notice, live them among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This is a decidedly evangelistic, witnessing, great commission, carrying out the purpose of God to declare the praises of him, verse 9. That's what this is telling us. That's what you're called to do. That's what I'm called to do. With the way we live, with the way we talk, with the way we think, That's what I'm called to do so that it will have an effect on other people and God's glory will be extended in his world. Now, how does that happen? Peter is telling us here 
that there's an attractive quality to people who live in this godly manner. They'll see your good works and glorify God on the day he visits us. How so? Well, I agree with there are a number of interpretations of that. I agree with Thomas Schreiner, who says that what this assumes is that someone has seen the godly life, the contrary life, contrary to the culture, contrary to the world, life of a genuine believer who's going hard after God. And they see that, and there's this attractive quality to that, and they ask about that. What makes you tick? What's the deal with you? Do you remember now in chapter 3 that we'll see in a few weeks? In verse 15, be ready to give an answer. But why would somebody ask? Because you're living this kind of life. And they ask and you tell them. And they come to Jesus. And they too glorify God on the day he visits us. They too will be saved. It's not, you know, sometimes we get this idea, you read a verse like that and there's going to be people who stand before God at the judgment and they say, you know, before I'm cast into outer darkness, I'd like to tell you, that was a really good guy though. I mean, he was, I really enjoyed what I saw out of him down there. No unbeliever that's going to be saying that to God. They'll be glorifying God on the day he visits us because they become one of God's people and they become one of God's people because the instrumentality that God has chosen to use to bring people to himself is the proclaimed word from the lips of his evangelists, you and me, but also the lived lives of his people who have been transformed. That's why passages like 1 Timothy chapter 2 say this. I urge... First of all, that petitions and prayers, intercession, thanksgiving be made for all people. Here is why. For kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. So Paul, who wrote that, says, pray for kings and authority so that you'll be able to do what you've been called to do. Live holy and godly lives. And having lived holy and godly lives, here's what the next verse says. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. How does that happen? By people who have lived godly and holy lives. And unbelievers have have seen this and have come to Christ as a result of their witness with their lives and their lips. Slaves, in our context, employees are told, Titus chapter 2, should show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior notice. Attractive. When you go to work tomorrow, you're on display, dear friend. And the attitude that you display in your words and in your actions around the water cooler as you discuss what happened over the weekend and then as the pressure of the week starts and everybody starts complaining about the boss and what a jerk he is and all of that and everybody's got a a boss that is a jerk, right? All bosses are jerks. We all think that until we become the boss and then somehow bosses are cool. We all think that and we all talk like that and we all act like that and when we do that, we're doing what everybody else does, no different scene. Jesus said, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16, you are the light of the world. 
Let your light, therefore, shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So, friends, we've been called to a mission, a mission that is to be carried out through the way we talk and think and act, but the root of the way we talk and think and act is what we want, what we desire. And so I say in your take-home truth, on your outline, we can fulfill our God-given mission only as we feed our God-given desires. We can fulfill our God-given mission only as we feed our God-given desires. If we are not a church and not a people who are feeding the desires of the Spirit that the Spirit has given to us, if we are not daily and regularly feeding those, we will not be a church. We will not be a people who attracts anybody to Jesus. And that's the mission that he has given us, to extend his glory in his world. And now he's going to tell us, beginning in chapter 2 and verse 13, that we'll see beginning next week, in the various relationships that we have to the government, to our employers, in our homes, we must demonstrate something distinctively different as we carry out that mission. Now we're going to bow and pray. As we do. Friend, you have heard me talk a lot in this series because the Scripture talks this way about us and them. But I hope you have caught when I say us versus them, I don't mean that they are worse than I am. I have already said we need to be more concerned about the sin in our hearts than we are about the sin out there. So I don't mean any sort of superiority. All I mean by that is God has two categories of people and two categories only. Two categories only. The people who belong to Jesus and those who don't. And the only reason I belong to Jesus is because Jesus has been gracious to me. The good news is this. You can belong to Jesus too. And we're preaching. We're trying, to, trying by God's grace to live lives that display something different in front of you and in front of others so that he would draw you out of the world into himself. And so he offers that rescue, that deliverance to you, that relationship to you. How can you have it? Admit that you have these desires of the flesh, of the sin nature, that they issue forth in the way you think and the way you talk and the way you act. In short, admit you're a sinner. You are. I am. But recognize that God has brought the solution to that sin. And not a, a one-time solution with no continuing consequences, but a lifetime eternal solution in the person and work of Jesus. He died to pay the penalty for your sin. He lived the life that you and I should have lived. And he offers both of those, his death and his life to you. Change your desires from the inside out. And so you repent. It just says... I recognize I'm going the wrong way. Lord, I want to go your way. I want to follow you with my life. And you ask him, in your own words from your heart, Lord, I'm a sinner. I recognize that my desires are not for you and not for others, that I have myself enthroned at the center of those. I'm an idolater at heart. And so I need your forgiveness that only Jesus can provide. I ask you to forgive me. I want to follow you with my life. Let's bow together. Father, thank you 
that you have given us an eternal purpose, a purpose that, whose effects will last forever, so that we are people who rise up every morning knowing that right now counts forever. That every moment of every day, we're not just biding time. We're not just finding ways to have fun and fulfill our time, I trust. (laughs) But Lord, rather, we're carrying out your purpose to extend your glory in your world. With our lips proclaiming your word, with our lives demonstrating the power of your word in your spirit by our transformed lives. Oh Lord, help us to be such people. Help us to be people who are feeding the soul and not feasting on the scraps that the world has to offer. And so I pray, Lord, that there are your people in this room doing business with you now in that regard. And Lord, we thank you for the good news that you've done what we cannot do. We absolutely cannot recommend ourselves to you. We have no merit of our own. We have only God the Son, the Lord Jesus, but he has done all that is necessary for us to have a relationship with you. Thank you for giving me that relationship. And thank you for offering that relationship to all who are here. I pray that your spirit is drawing some from the world to yourself right now so that they become now lives and lips that bring glory to your name. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.